Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Gaudi Mitzbez22.com podcasts and YouTube channel videos. Uh, today, I'm, I'm really pleased to have a real, a real heavy hitter with me today, a, a, a sort of uh, Internet phenom these days, but also a man of great gravitas in his own right. Uh, Gavin Ashenden, who uh, formerly uh, an Anglican priest uh, and a bishop in the the Christian Episcopal Church. You'll have to explain to me what exactly that is. And then a convert to uh, Catholicism uh, a few years ago. And so I, I wanted to have him on the show because he's uh, really an interesting fellow. And so thank you, Gavin, for, for coming on the show today. Well, Larry, thank you very much for having me and uh, very glad to be in conversation with you. Yes. Now, you're English, right? Not uh, Scottish or something uh, more esoteric even than that, right? I did a DNA test, which my, my was bought for me by my family a few years ago, and I discovered I'm 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 thirty percent Anglo-Saxon from my father's side, thirty percent Celtic from my mother's side, and thirty percent Jewish. <laughs> so, wow! <laughs> so well, that was well, a surprise. Well. Yeah, that's quite a surprise. It, it turned out my father was was completely Jewish without knowing it. So he had a Jewish mother, and um, there was a couple of rabbis who came into the country in seventeen hundred. From Eastern Europe, and they, they there's a sort of Jewish line anyway. They intermarried with my family in the in the Victorian era, and consequently preserved a, a level of, of of Jewishness and uh, pass on their DNA to the progeny. Wow, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I, I've resisted doing any such DNA analysis of my own background. Uh, mainly because I have such conspiratorial fantasies floating in my head of the, <laughs> of the government getting a hold of my DNA and doing things with it. But, uh, but it would be fascinating to see my own. I'm half Polish and a little bit Italian and so on. But anyway, that, I didn't come on here to discuss my DNA. I, I know that. Uh, so please, before we go on, before I want you to discuss briefly your conversion story, uh, what is the Christian Episcopal Church in which you were a bishop? So the... Um... The Anglican world. I'm just. I'm just trying to line you up so I, I. I look into the camera rather than look shiftily to one side or the other. But now I have the camera and your eyes lined up. So there we go. Okay. Good. Um, the, the 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 Anglican world uh, is a very complicated and sophisticated beast. But in America, uh, when the liberal agenda, the progressive Christian agenda, broke in the 1980s, the Anglican Church, which is already uh, theologically and politically a system of different churches would come together in an in, in an alliance uh, under a, a form of gentle Protestantism, div divided under the pressure, and some of them veered towards Catholicism. Uh, and one of the ways they veered is that, that, that having a question mark put over their orders by, uh, by Pope Leo the um, 13th, right. They, right. they sought to uh, gain Catholic orders by having both or the ordination of priests and the consecration of their bishops uh, added to by Roman Catholic bishops. Now, I won't begin to try and defend the Roman Catholic bishops who ordained uh, or consecrated <laughs> Anglican clergy. I'm not sure. I, and you might imagine I strongly disapprove of that now. Um, yeah. But at the time, there was a, a, a bishop in Brazil, um, South America being a, a place of creative, creative Catholicism, uh, who um, fell out with the Vatican immediately after the war over the Nazi run uh, into South America. Right, right. Uh, and for one reason or another, they, they, they got his secretary to smuggle in his resignation 
papers in the morning mail and without knowing it he resigned his see and the vatican said ha got you uh <laughs> so he, he was quite cross about that uh and um he set up he said well these are still my my diocese still my church still my clergy not not yours and so he set up the independent brazilian apostolic church it, it didn't last very long and, and as, as schism doesn't but 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 during that time he consecrated a number of episcopalian bishops uh, and they formed what became the christian episcopal church and the intention of it was quite sensible in some ways um it was put when i realized that, that the church of england was going to simply become a form of progressive sub-Christian post-Protestant sect. I know that sounds a bit rude, but but I could defend that if asked to. Uh, the question was, was there any kind of Anglicanism that, that could be rescued, a form of orthodox Anglicanism with a rooted in, in, in Catholic character, but with reformed charisms of yeah. some kind? Um, and the people who put this to me said that, that having having Catholic Episcopal orders, which might or might not be accepted by the Vatican. The Vatican tends to allow four generations of them if you if you apply in these rather eccentric circumstances, uh, longer than four and, and it's too far. But you might then, uh, you might provide an ecumenical bridge between conservative Anglicans looking for a home in Rome um, and uh, and Rome itself, a kind of do-it-yourself ordinariat um, put together <laughs> with, you know, what you can imagine. Well, at the, at the time, this would have been about 2012 when I had these conversations. Um, we had no idea what what lay ahead. Uh, I mean, what, what it was quite clear that progressive liberal Protestant Christianity was doomed, and the only question was, how might you rescue people? So, if if people ask me now, my answer would be, well, just become Roman Catholic. It's so much simpler. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. But at, exactly. but at the but... time, but at the time. Uh, that that wasn't as clear to me as it should have been. I mean, I mean sometimes it, it takes a while for fog to clear. Uh, and uh, so I would say it took about seven or eight years for the fog to clear. And when uh, when it did clear, and I realized that what I was trying to do, which was effectively draw together five or six Anglican constituencies, the absence of a magisterium made the whole process completely fatal. And as I reflected on that, I said, well, there's only one place to get the magisterium, and that's by becoming Catholic properly. So that's what happened. Yeah. So the, the the question I first asked, which is, what is the Christian Episcopal Church, actually answered the second question, yeah. which is kind of give us a detail, a little bit of a detail of your segue into into the Catholic Church, and you kind of adequately described that. Now, so the the nub of the issue was the lack of a magisterium in in the Christian Episcopal Church. Uh, and that you needed to take that that step into Rome. So I think there... I, I think I'd want I, I, just for the sake of of complexity. Um, I mean, one can one can answer things as simply as possible, but but sometimes with a nod to complexity. I think there are a number of a number of layers, and I mean, some of those layers are to do with spiritual blindness. It, it's I I think that there is a a <coughs> metaphysical war raged over souls who want to return to Rome. I think it is of such importance to Jesus and Our Lady uh, that the, and, and, the, and the Protestant Reformation or deformation, as it's been called, is such a wound in the body of Christ that I think the stakes are really quite high. Uh, and so returning to Catholicism is not a matter of personal preference or not a matter of choosing one church which is better than the other. 
uh, it, it's a way of, of being obedient to the will of Christ, as he talks about it in John 17, uh, in a sacrificial way, which has, I think, a great deal at stake in terms of the spiritual struggle, if we're going to talk metaphysically, that we're involved in. And the reason I say that is not because I'm trying to make it a more sophisticated or pretentious process in my own case, but because I'm very surprised at the irrational way in which people uh, whom I urge Catholic conversion on uh, object to it. And they don't object to it with clear theological, intellectual, cultural, historical uh, reasons. They object to it with a kind of hysteria. Um, and, and I've often thought that when one when one meets irrational hysteria, one might one hypothesis is one's dealing with the demonic or with with the with the sort of um uh, with the problematic other side of the line uh, and and more and more i think this is so because one can one can argue the matter theologically very cogently but but people won't have it and this not having it is not just a matter of pride though it sometimes is or obstinacy or convenience though it sometimes is but but I think I think it's much more than that. I think it's part of the spiritual struggle that we're engaged in to try and heal the Western Church under the sea of of Peter. But there are there are other arguments too. Um, there's an enormous amount of fake history. Uh, I thought myself quite well educated theologically and and historically, and it was an enormous surprise to me as I reread um, English history of the 16th and 17th century to discover that I had been fed disinformation from childhood. And uh, the, the scope of that disinformation was, was it enormous. Uh, and, well, and you, I, I you're familiar then with the, like Eamon Duffy's book, The Stripping of the Altars? Oh, yeah. uh, absolutely. But, but, but Duffy, uh, but I mean, Duffy's only been around what for 20 or 30 years in terms of, of, of you know, it's a right. new thing. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, first of all, before Duffy, we had the, uh, the Oxford movement and the Tractarians saying, uh, again, with disinformation, sadly, saying there's a three-branch theory, uh, there's a very good chance we really are Catholics or we're growing into Catholics or the umbilical cord is, is still there. Uh, actually, when one rereads the history of the Elizabethan persecutions and the extent to which the state went to to demonize and execute and, and persecute uh, priests just for celebrating the mass, it's presented as if they were national traitors pursuing the interests of Spain or France. But that, that, uh, that's only cosmetically true. What, what was actually happening was it was a, a vicious and vigorous determination to theologically, spiritually, philosophically crush the idea of the mass and to kill anyone who tried to promote it. But when you see the extent to which the state went to to do that, including fines uh, of, of, for not turning up at the Anglican parish church, equivalent to a year's, a year's income every time you didn't do it, yeah, uh, the vigor and the ruthlessness, uh, the murderousness, and the utter fundamentalist determination to wipe out Catholicism, and to to do it not only politically but but liturgically uh, as an act of the state, you you cannot, as Pope Leo pointed out, you you cannot take those sort of 150 brutalized years and say there is some form of theological, spiritual, liturgical bridge that gets you from one end to the other. What happened was that that further down the line, a, a degree of revisionist nostalgia uh, allowed Anglicans to posit some form of continuity that is, in fact, historically completely illegitimate. But it's a nice story and rather comforting until you look so, at the facts. 
And along those lines, what, what, why do you suppose, and I want to come back to this line, I don't want to take us too far off a tangent, but myself, I am, I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. And I've always wondered, a man of his erudition who clearly understood the history that you've just outlined, what caused him not to cross the Tiber, do you think? Well, so that's extremely interesting. And, and I, I would say two things, uh, the devil and Irish Protestantism. Uh, so I, I've, I've, I've explained why I think the devil is at work. Uh, I, I mean, he was certainly at work for me, just, just in brackets for another 30 seconds. Yeah. I, I remember being astonished um, at, at, my, at, at my instinctive aggression against Our Lady. Uh, I, I, I was quite well read theologically, but when I was invited to pray the rosary, I found myself dealing with something like almost like a sort of indigestion. Uh, I can't, I won't, I'm not going to. It's not rational, it's not theological, and if it's spiritual, it's from the other side. And I, I think, first of all, therefore, one mustn't, I, I suggest that people don't undermine the degree of spiritual myopia that I think um, the spiritual struggle imposes. But as well as that, Lewis came from a very Protestant family in the most Protestant part of the United Kingdom, Belfast. Yeah. And I think for cultural reasons, uh, for, for, the, for reasons of, of, of propaganda, you know, we're all brainwashed a little bit by our, our culture. I think it was simply impossible for him to take that step. And, and it's worse than that. There's a, there's a degree of racism and, and social snobbery in England. Uh, Catholics were Irish, Italians, Poles, foreigners that English people have been trained to look down on for generations. They were the migrants, the workers, the lower class, the sub-intellectuals. They were the people who weren't clever enough or sophisticated enough to enjoy the benefits. I'm speaking ironically and in parentheses, commas. It was, it's, I can't tell you how difficult it is. It still is for a middle-class English person to junk what 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 small elements of English national pride remain and become a Catholic? You become a foreigner. Um, now, in one sense, that's perfectly right. You you know you are a foreigner in that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Chesterton was quite yeah. good on that. But yeah. in another sense, intertwined with all of that is a degree of English civic cultural identity. Uh, and again, it it it's um, Catholics are the other. Uh, yeah. They're not us. They're outside yeah. the establishment. You know, <clears throat> you you were they they couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge. They couldn't hold places in the professions. The only Catholics who had any respect at all, and that not much, were a few very rich ancient families who who were recognised. Yeah. So it's a big cultural uh, thing. Oh, I I think that really puts the puts your puts the finger on something really really I think true about Lewis. So, um, for example, I was always struck by his almost complete lack of attention to. Cardinal Newman, uh, you you find almost nothing in Lewis's writings about about Newman. A, a little here and there, but but not to the extent that one would expect of a churchman of Newman's intellectual stature in the in the British tradition. You know that that Lewis would have been familiar with. But anyway, let's get. I want to get back to what you were talking. The main, you know, the the sort of notion that the history that has been fed a lot of bad history uh, about the nature of, of the uh, of the English Reformation under Henry VIII and on through Elizabeth, which kind of presented to then to the world and, and to, to the British subjects and then later on to almost everybody, this narrative that Catholicism was really rather 
easily tossed off by the British people themselves, that that the British people greeted this this Anglican revolution with a great sigh of relief. Finally, we're free of Rome. And so but the the truth is exactly the opposite, that this was kind of uh, imposed on the British people and they didn't want it. Very much so. And there are there are examples of that, like the Pilgrimage of Grace um, and the fact that there were parts of the country that were profoundly Catholic and very devoted. But but part, most of the evidence goes is due to the extent to which the state simply went out of its way, both to rewrite history and to be immensely punitive. I think one of the issues was that they were absolutely determined not to give the the, mon the monastic lands back, not to give the money back. Yes. And, and uh, the, the moment you entered, I mean, it, it ought to be a current discussion still, because I'm about to go on the BBC on Sunday and talk about how the Catholic cathedrals can be saved from falling in disrepair under their Anglican hosts who have no people to go to them. Uh, and well, one of the reasons is that the uh, church, the Anglican Church commissioners, sit on about five billion pounds of assets. That's Catholic money. That's the historic money that they that they gathered together when they when they raped and and robbed the monasteries. Now you could make a very good case historically and morally, you know, politically, it won't go anywhere. But you could make a case for saying, give the cathedrals back to the Catholics and give us five billion pounds to run them, which was the money you took from us. In the first place, now that that's obviously a form of romantic um, idealism <laughs> that's only impractical and it's only yeah. designed to to annoy people. But <laughs> but historically, it's true. You know, historically, that's yeah. the case. They're they're Catholic buildings conceived with Catholic imagination. The reason the Anglicans are filling them with entertainment centres like um, uh, like helter skelters and mini golf courses and gin clubs and adult film evenings. Is because they have no sense of the mass, no sense of the of the, the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, and they are simply entertainment centers of of, of a religious yeah. or social kind. I've seen that. It's sad. It's sad. You know, I'm a I'm a Benedictine oblate, and and the patron saint that I chose when I when I professed to be a Benedict oblate was Saint John Robert, who was a Benedictine, uh, uh, an English Benedictine who fled England uh, under the persecutions, went to France. The, his conscience got the better part of him. But the, the point is, there are all these Catholics in England begging him to come back and begging others like him to come back because they wanted the mass. So he did yes. go back. He said the mass was discovered and was executed, yes. uh, a martyr to the faith. So um, this but this is a history that you just don't read very much about at all these days. You don't. And uh, I mean, every time I go through London on my bicycle, I, I, I if I'm anywhere near Marble Arch, I stop at Tyburn and there on the northwest corner. I'm a Londoner. I was born in London. I had no. I even I I I roughly knew Marble Arch was where Tyburn was, sort of. I I didn't know there was a plaque set into the sidewalk in memory of them. Nor did I know there was a convent where perpetual adoration is practiced in on behalf of the martyrs. The, the 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 real Catholic history of England has been suppressed for a very good reason because I think the moment you open it up. Uh, you you raise questions of the establishment and of the behavior of the state and of the comparison between Catholic and Anglican truth as expressions of, of the church that cause a great deal of trouble when you look at them. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's a story that, that needs to be told, I think, more and more. Uh, but the reason why I chose John Robert is because, and then we can segue into the next topic, which is that even though I'm a cradle Catholic, I do attend an Anglican ordinary at 
parish in Excellent. Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it took some adjusting. My pastor, Father Eric Bergman, I don't know if you know Father Eric Bergman, but Father Bergman has 10 kids. So it did take a little adjustment after mass to see little ones tugging at the chasuble of my pastor saying, daddy, daddy, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but it's been altogether refreshing in, in many, many ways. And we, we can talk about perhaps a married clergy or a non-married clergy. Uh, and I'm open to the to the topic one way or the other. Uh, I just know I love Father Bergman. Anyway, the point is, I want, I want to talk about the liturgy. I mean, what, what drew me to this parish what, wasn't that I don't th- I, I don't consider the Novus Ordo of the Catholic Church to be this demonic Freemason construction out of the, the fantasies of Bugnini and so on. Although I, I do believe that there are deficiencies in the Novus Ordo, big ones, and that there needed to be a reform of the reform. And so therefore, I consider what Pope Benedict did in, in creating the Anglican ordinariate uh, to be an absolutely genius gesture on his part, because and, and then you can comment on this. From my point of view, the Anglican ordinariate liturgy approximates very closely what I think the Council Fathers at Vatican II sort of had in mind with regard to reforming the old Tridentine Mass. What's what say? First off, are you a member of the ordinariate? And then what do you think of the ordinariate liturgy? <laughs> well, there's a history there. Um, I, I when I was when I became a Catholic, it was partly at the invitation of my Catholic diocesan bishop, uh, who wanted to involve me. Who was going to, planning to build a seminary in his diocese for traditionalists. This is before before the the, the events that uh, this is before 2020. Um, and um, that didn't happen. I I asked to transfer to the ordinariat to be ordained. Uh, a Catholic priest, and um, discovered that uh, that the price was going to be media silence. Um, and as I had a, I thought God had given me because it was certainly no act of mine. Uh, I I had a, an audience. I want to interrupt of, you. I had a suspicion that this was the case, which is why I, I asked you this question. <laughs> I hope I haven't opened up a landmine field for you. But go ahead. No, no, I, because I think I, I sympathize with the ordinariat. I mean, I, I you know. I, my papers got lost twice in, in the course in the course of the application. They went to Vietnam instead of Rome, reasons we don't <laughs> understand. So so there's elements of humour in it. I didn't find it funny at the time, but now I do. I think I see the hand of God in it. But if we go back, to, not not to my my bleating about my life, but uh, you know, given the pressure from Rome, of course the ordinariat would be concerned about priests speaking out, and we now we've, we're seeing priests cancel every month. So. Uh, they weren't wrong in their anxiety, and I don't think I was wrong in saying that I can be more used to the Catholic Church uh, as a proponent of its truth and its claims uh, as a as a layman than I could with the great privilege, which I would have loved, of celebrating Mass. But we go back to the ordinary as a conception, um, despite, despite the you know that 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 friction. Um, I think it's the most wonderful idea, and I agree with you completely. I go back one step further and say, well, although I've been rude about Anglicanism and Protestantism and and the, and the state, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is very generous, even to schismatics. And one of the things that that happened at the Reformation was charisms that should have belonged to the to the Petrine Church were divided and split into different areas. Now, they they were all agents of renewal, and they should have found their way back into the church. And the great tragedy of not healing the Reformation is that charisms that were very precious, very powerful, remain outside 
the Petrine Church when they really belong inside. And so, you know, you get, for example, there were three things Anglicans were very good at. They were very good at hymns. They were very good at liturgy. They were very good at pastoral care. The Catholic Church is not always good at hymns. It's not always good at liturgy, looking at the novice ordo. I'm afraid it's not very good at pastoral care sometimes. So, um, but but why should not these three charisms find their way back back home? And in the ordinary, they do find their way back home. Um, the liturgy that Cranmer, you know, Cranmer was a, uh, he, he was, he's presented as a hero to Anglicans. He's a much more complex character than that, um, a wounded and complex character. But he was an absolute genius. Uh, and the English language, again, I'm somebody who doesn't see the Middle Ages as a period between two, two uh, other attractive periods of history. I think I see it as the absolute height of human, uh, of human achievement in terms of music and architecture, philosophy, uh, and 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 sanctity, uh, the, the the holiness of of people in the West, um, often women in the fourteenth and and fifteenth centuries, uh, was 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 notable and and, and profound and and rich. Uh, so, but back to the ordinary, the liturgy is very very beautiful, and uh, to to. To 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 make good what Cranmer made bad, which is the the uh, which is the theology which he bastardized, uh, and 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 you know with a few tweaks of nouns, verbs, and sentence structure, to keep the genius of his poetry and the incredibly beautiful cadence of English language that stretches from Shakespeare to Cranmer. Um, again, one of the most beautiful languages, both in rhythm. And, and richness of vocabulary and creative inventiveness, and to use that to worship God, uh, it's you know it's like the difference between using uh, I don't know some 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 not very competent songster and Mozart. You'd want to you'd want to use Mozart musically to praise the Lord. Um, so so I think I think the ordinary act is a, is an absolute act of creative genius. I fear that politically it it may. It may not succeed in the way it ought to succeed, but then church politics have always been a bloody and complicated business, and hopefully will it will last the present outlast the present regime and the, the the generosity and prophetic insight that Pope Benedict brought to the church may still find that the seed he planted flowering. I, I do take some consolation in the fact that Pope Francis, though he has moved against the traditional Catholic Latin Mass. Uh, has pretty much left the ordinariate alone, although I suspect that he probably would not have been created such a thing on his own initiative had had he been the pope at the time. Uh, but nevertheless, I do take consolation in the fact that he hasn't moved against it. But I do believe that uh, one of the reasons is, is that the ordinariate parishes did not become hotbeds of opposition to his papacy in the same way that various traditional Latin mass parishes did. Um, and, and I think that that had a role to play in it. So you uh, so you're actually uh, in the eyes of Rome, then you're you're perhaps an illicitly but a validly consecrated bishop, correct? I think I probably am. Yes. I mean, I was invited by my by, by my diocesan bishop to test the validity of my consecration. Uh, but told it would take seven years. Well, I, I'm 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 about to turn seventy. I, I you know time is short. Yes. I, I I I wasn't sure that seven years waiting for Rome to 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 give me a, a fancy ecclesial prefix 
was was quite worth it. So uh, yeah. I, I invited them not to pursue it. But um, but I am slightly ontologically con confused. I I, uh, <laughs> I I suspect my orders are valid, but they're not they're not operable. So um, I I you know this wouldn't be the first time that people have excused me of, of, of schizophrenia. So I just accept the divisions well, of personality and press on with. I, I, I share I, I share in a minuscule way with that metaphysical confusion because I'm actually a laicized deacon. Uh, I was right. three months. I was three months away from ordination to the priesthood and decided, yet no, not going to do that. So I did get. So I ha I have somewhat of that same. But the reason why I ask you the question does pertain to liturgy, which is you you therefore are not a functioning priest in the Catholic Church, and therefore you do not say a mass uh, in any public way or probably even privately. Uh, so. Uh, what then is your experience of of Catholic liturgy as as a lay person uh, out there in the pews? Um, so, so I don't say a mass publicly. I, I don't say it privately. I've been very tempted to say it privately. <laughs> I, I would think... too. I would be too, actually. <laughs> so kudos to you for resisting that temptation. But anyway, go uh, ahead. Well, I have I have resisted, apart from the fact that occasionally I found myself celebrating from the back of the church under my breath <laughs> which is the which is the closest i allow my it's too far already and i apologize and it's a sin and i i'm sorry and i try not to do it but every so often the words spring out and uh, <clears throat> um uh, but anyway so that that uh, lacuna aside um well uh so my brother is what do you think of the current state of the Catholic liturgy and what should we do about it? That's kind of what I'm leading up to here. Well, well it's substandard. I mean, the Novus Ordo is substandard. Um, it's substandard in exactly the same way that the Anglican equivalent liturgy is substandard. Uh, the, the Anglican is worse substandard. Um, you know, it, it throws in all kinds of ambiguities at the uh, epiclesis and and elsewhere. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's awful. Uh, the Lord be with you and also with you. I mean, it, it's, you know... Uh, there's a kind of clumsiness to it. it it's it, there's no language, but 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 in fact, the the Anglicans have presented the, the worst, you know, exactly the opposite, the, uh, a non-language that nobody likes with no beauty to it. Um, but but the Catholics are not far off it with the Novus Ordo. I think it's um, it's redeemed by the fact that if you if you're saying the Agnus Dei or the Sanctus, it is the Agnus Dei, it is the Sanctus. But but um, I mean, if I was if if somebody asked me to sit down and say what could be done, um, and it wasn't more merely a, a movement towards the Latin Mass of which I'm a, a deeply fond, uh, and and you know all, all my instincts are the Latin Mass is the Latin Mass and. Everything else simply derives from it and back ad fontes. But if yeah. we weren't going to do that, um, th then then I would I would look, I, I would lament the fact that the English language, both English and American, is really pretty functional at the moment. It's not very beautiful. Uh, the, 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 there was a moment when, when particularly in translating the. So, I mean, one of the reasons why. Please forgive me going on a tangent, but I'll try and come back. One of the reasons why I, I, I moved towards ordinariat was I was I was saying the Psalms in the, in the daily office, and I, I have a little bit of Hebrew, and I was saying, Lord, these are trash. Who were the idiots who translated? This is just dreadful. The translation is dreadful, and the English is dreadful. I don't want to spend my next 20 years before I come to stand before you bastardizing the Psalms like this. <laughs> you know, what have I given up? Because actually there's some very good Anglican translations. Uh, and that was when I thought, well, I could go back to Coverdale. I could go back to the 
the the poetic beauty of of the I mean they made a few mistakes in Hebrew in the 16th century, but um, so that was when the idea of moving towards ordinary at first took took root. But liturgically, we we could make it more beautiful. Um, we could make it less incompetently uh, imminent. I mean, in terms of you know, one of the things Vatican II did was to make concessions to the culture, uh, to the uh, to, to 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 make it seem more accessible to the ordinary person. But I don't think access you know, it, the accessibility is a job of the Holy Spirit. If we read St. Yes. Paul, it's not it's not the job of yes. of, of incompetent liturgists. Um, well, and only one, that, one, one, go ahead. I'm sorry. As soon as you start to tailor it to what you think are the competencies of this or that generation, it's just, it's out of date within 20 years. Of course, it is. Exactly, exactly so. And there is a very what's the word? Sophisticated, subtle, challenging uh, task of balancing transcendence and imminence in all liturgy. Um, and it's no easy business, but but. You know, you know when you failed, <laughs> and at the moment, the moment liturgically, the Catholic Church has failed in that balance. Now, again, the Holy Spirit makes good our deficiencies um, uh, uh, with the miracle of the Mass and uh, well, and, and the utterly extraordinary transcendence of of uh, uh, well, the fusion of transcendence and imminence in, in the very act of receiving our Lord through the bread in our bodies. But but we could do better to build a framework that that was more honoring to that that profound transaction how, of the okay, two how does I, I agree with you how does one do that and i think this was the head of hesitancy of pope benedict people say man he was the pope most competent of all modern popes to truly reform the liturgy in a proper direction why didn't he do it and he actually hinted at it at one time and i think this is a real problem to just come in and say, okay, we had the Novus Ordo. It was a big flaw, a big don't. We're going to really radically change this thing now back to something more in tune with the tradition. How does that then avoid just the deeper implication that the liturgy is this utterly plastic thing that we can just toss around like a beach ball at the shore uh, willy nilly based on who is Pope at the time? I think this is what Pope Benedict really feared. I think that's probably right. Well, actually, the Anglicans had had a good idea uh, in in the turn of the 20th century when they were revising both their hymnal and their liturgy. For, for their hymnal, they got uh, Vaughan Williams, uh, the most you know, one of the most competent and beautiful uh, of English composers, and uh, and for for the liturgy and the translation of the Psalms, they had people like T. S. Eliot. Uh, so, I mean, I think yes. one of the things I would do is to say you know, the problem with 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 professional translators is. Um, you know, the, the, they're quite good linguistically um, at the act of translation, but they may be dreadful wordsmiths. So you want poets and dramatists. You want people who have got a feeling for for cadence and rhythm and 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 the multi-layeredness of words. And you put them in the same room with the experts, and you say, okay, now let's see if together we can bring bring your bring you know bring those skills together. But I mean, there are no poets in. There were no poets anywhere near any liturgical thing I've been involved with. No, it was <laughs> even the reform of the translation of the Novus Ordo liturgy to make it conform more closely to the Latin uh, um, that Pope Benedict did, a move which I applaud. Nevertheless, even from my point of view, as you read some of the prayers, they're extremely convoluted. Uh, translations that don't make for good English in in very many circumstances. 
Yeah, that's right. And I'm afraid, you know, this is the point where we find a conflict. This is a conflict every every child translating Latin, you know, Latin to English or French to English finds in the in the results. How do you how do you manage accuracy with beauty, or or how do you manage yeah. uh, te- technical accuracy of, of matching the words with um, with artistic or fluent accuracy? And it's 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 a it's a, it's. A, it's it's an almost an alchemical process. It's a bit, and I think you need people with gifts to do that. But very often, the people best at the languages are are not the right people to create the poetry yeah. of the translation. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. And I I, I hope that I, I at age sixty five, I hope I live to see the day, uh, maybe under a future papacy, in which a real reform of the reform of the Catholic liturgy takes place. Because uh, I think there's a great instead of a synod on synodality or a synod on this side of the, maybe we should have had a synod on liturgy. Although I cringe to think what the product of that might be. But that then leads into the next the next segment of, the, of this talk. And I don't know how long you have, but I, I'm so happy that you're here, which is this. I mean, you converted to Catholicism for all the reasons that you talked about. No need to rehearse those again. What then what then is your reaction to the fact that you're in the Catholic Church now and you have a pope? Um, <laughs> let's just say is less than what your ideal might be for what the the the, the occupant of the chair of Peter might be. So what, what what are your thoughts? I mean, what do you as a former Anglican who came to the Catholic Church seeking, in a sense, the rock of Petrine authority? What do you think now of, of the church? What, what, what you know, What's your take on this papacy and, and where do we go from here? Oh, so, so two questions. Well, one is how I how do I react? And then yeah, uh, my, exactly. my, my, my analysis. Um, so my, my reaction, of course, is 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 complaint and self-pity. Lord, could could I not have converted under JP2, please? You know, I say I see John Paul II singing the Lord's Prayer in Latin, and I say, that's my kind of pope. <laughs> yeah. why, why did I not get there on time? Wonderful masculine Baratos. musical. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yes. Great. Um, so um so I and I complain and 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 then um but of course if one is to try to understand what's going on in the world at the moment in the church at the moment, I get really fed up with people saying, ha ha ha, you jumped from the frying pan into the fire, you silly man. Did, didn't you know it was going to be just as bad? And the answer was, well, of course I did. I've known perfectly well. I mean, one of the things I did in the 1980s was I, I, I smuggled Bibles into the, both the Soviet Union and into Czechoslovakia. In Czechoslovakia, the communists banned all ordinations, so the Catholic Church was underground, but it had no access to any books. I was one of the people who smuggled books in wow. for, for Catholic ordinands in underground seminaries. I got caught by the KGB in Russia and by the secret police in Prague and interrogated. They were very unpleasant to me. Uh, but they gave me a very strong sense of what the issues were between communism and Christianity. And one of the greatest shocks of my life was round about the year 2000, when I had a profound, almost mystical sense that communism was back. And I thought how, how it was kind of, it was this was not very odd to people, um, but perhaps the very oddness might, might give it legitimacy. It was a taste in my mouth. I tasted the rust of communism, almost like a, very hard to explain, but 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 I I said, Lord, it's back. How could it be back? Fukuyama in '89 said, it, it, you know, it's the end of all yeah. that kind of thing. And then I I was a I was a, a 
professor of the psychology of religion at, a at the most radical left-wing university in, in the UK. I began to do some reading and talking to my colleagues. I discovered the Frankfurt School, which I'd never heard of, didn't know about. Horkheimer, Adorno, right. A absolutely. And then you know, I sat down and I said, okay, okay, so that's it. You know, that's that's the stuff that's percolating through the faculty doors that I'm, and, and it was perfectly clear to me, even in the year 2000, that it was going to impact freedom of speech and freedom of thought. So that's how it's coming back. So I began to talk about that and write about that. And, you know, people said, you're, you're, you know, you're mad, you're stupid, you're neurotic, whatever. Um, and one of the things that I saw really quite clearly was that both both the stalking horses being used by this absolutist totalitarian revamp of, of cultural, well, we call it cultural Marxism, was going to use feminism and sexuality as its stalking horses. And the, the, what we were being presented with was, was not the case, and the implications would be enormously problematic and they would lead to a degree of totalitarian control. And that's exactly what's happened and is and is happening. Um, well, Pope Francis, well, I don't understand him, of course. Um, I, I, um, I see what he's doing. I mean, what he's doing is he's acting as an agent for, for, for exactly the cultural, uh, the proponents of the cultural struggle that we're with. And so it's extremely uh, unpleasant. Um, occasionally, I think to myself, and I, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm you know, there's really there, there's some strong parallels with the ministry of Judas uh, amongst the apostles. So, you know, our Lord has 12 apostles, um, 8% 8 of them or whatever a 12th is, uh, are, are, are traitors to the cause. They've, they've willfully or they have, you know, maybe willfully misunderstood. Judas has quite clearly got a more politicized um, you know, view of what, what the messianic quest is. And in the end, he betrays Christ to force Jesus to jump, he hopes his way, we think. Um, there's something, I'm afraid, I'm sorry to say that in the values that the, the, the present Pope, there's something of, of the spirituality of Judas at work because why the chaos, why the attack on people who are most faithful, why, why the attack on the guardians of the profoundest parts of the tradition, why the misunderstandings, uh, um, oh, why the ambiguity? Although I probably said that, um, and so I again, one could do it, speak theologically or pneumatically, um, but the enemy is clearly inside the gates, <laughs> and so yeah, uh, you know. So <clears throat> I think the Marxist analogy is is an interesting one. I was in Rome uh, this past uh, summer, and it happened to coincide with the Vatican. Which cost them eight hundred and fifty thousand euro, hosting the world meeting of the fraternity of human yeah. family or something solid. Yeah. And I remember walking up and down the Via della Conciliazione, the the big main venue, leaving leaving Rome, and all these uh, all of these tents were set up. They were clearly expecting thousands and thousands of people to show all these vendors. But what I noticed, there were all kinds of slogans on banners that said solidarity, inclusion, fraternity. Mm -hmm. There was not a single banner anywhere that had the name Jesus Christ, mm. not once, not anywhere. And then, of course, there was the massive embarrassment of the fact that nobody showed up, even in a summer when Rome was completely overrun with tourists uh, in a way that I've never seen before. So the, 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 it opens up like a dual prong question here with regard to your uh, your very strong sort of insinuation. There's a sort of in, in a, a sort of Judas element here. Number one. Uh, it, how how 
conscious do you think Pope Francis is that he's actually deliberately doing something here, sidling up to a kind of humanitarian, utopian uh, sort of almost Marxist vision of things? Is he just naive or is this deliberate? And the second thing would be, will it be successful? I mean, I, I just don't see how it can possibly even remotely be attractive to most people in the Catholic views. Anyway, go ahead. Well, this, these are very profound questions, and I'm not sure I'm up to the answers, but I'll try. Uh, in terms of the first one, uh, to some extent, I was Pope Francis. I, I went, what I mean by that is I inhabited some of the instinct, the theological instincts I see him acting out. And the reason I did that was because I became a Jungian. Uh, I became a Jungian because, for a number of reasons, partly because in the university context I needed somebody to act as a foil to Freud, and and Freud configured all the minds of my colleagues uh, as faculty members, and Jung appeared to me to be just the ally I needed. And this happened to be the moment when Jungian ideas were just about to break into Western culture and uh, like a tidal wave. Um, and there were, there were some very real advantages about being a Jungian. Um, I had, when I first converted as an evangelical Protestant, some fairly nasty experiences with evil. So although I've spoken about evil in our conversation so far, I haven't done it lightly or or with a, uh, with a kind of um, uh, reflex closed mind that you find in some forms of fundamentalist uh, presentation of, of, of the issues. Um, I fled from evil. I, I found I found the difficulty of discerning the difference between evil and mental illness too difficult as a young man and a young Anglican priest. And I'm afraid it, it, it wasn't exactly cowardice, but it was I I can't fight this. I'm not big enough to manage this. I'm not. Uh, but but. If I, if I take the psychological route, I can bring some good out of it because Jung offers some a great deal of virtue. But what I didn't realize, a bit like Marxism itself, is that if you eat the bait, there's poison in it. And so the poison in Jung is, is the complete refusal to make a distinction between metaphysical good and metaphysical evil. Uh, so he uses instead the notion of light and shadow, which are on a, on a continuum, one's the inversion of the other, you bring them together. Yin and yang, so, all that. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this, is, this is, although there are times and there are places both in psychology and in philosophy where, where there's scope for elements of that, as a philosophy of life, it's profoundly dangerous because it entirely blinds you to the reality of the spiritual struggle between good and evil. Something that Lewis, Lewis in particular, was brilliant at this. In fact, Lewis had his own fight with this, um, and and he he saw the fight in terms of um, ah who was the who was the mystic in the eighteenth century? I'm, saying, I'm getting the when I forget people's names. When it was um, Blake, William Blake. Oh, William Blake. So 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 William Blake produced this marriage of heaven and hell. Lewis, which was very influential philosophically in, in English uh, intellectual circles, William was Lewis was outraged at this and decided this had to be taken on. And so he wrote the book The Great Divorce, nothing to do with marriage, everything to do with the divorce of heaven and hell, right. in order to bring back to his readers, and particularly his Christian readers, the reality of the struggle for salvation, that heaven and hell were real. Luckily, he believed in purgatory too, that, that the angels and the demons were real, that the struggle for salvation took place in this context, and that Blake 
and Jung Jung becomes a kind of just disciple of Blake, and and as does Pope Francis, in fact, uh, in terms in the sense that they're that they've they've got the same worldview. Well, when I found myself a Jungian, certain consequences followed. Having having bought into the presuppositions, you then take a view of sexuality which is entirely integralist. You look at homosexuality and mix it with a bit of pastoral care and a bit of socialism and you you know poor outsiders and 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 a bit of Jungian. Well, there is no good or evil. We need to we need to find a conflation and integration. And you suddenly become a passionate pro-gay activist who believes that you're doing good. And so I spent about fifteen years in that mindset. And and the, and this is a, I, I it's sorry, but the the thing that broke me out of it was that. I got attacked by the devil. <laughs> I had I had some oh. demonic, demonic episodes <laughs> where I phoned up a friend of mine who was a Catholic diocesan exorcist. His name was, and I said, "I'm either going mad, or the devil's real, and he's making a serious job of trying to attack me." And he was a he was a marvelous man. <laughs> he said, "I'm sorry, dear boy, it's real. Uh, you know, I, what do I do?" And he said. Nothing. Pray the rosary. Just pray the rosary. And I said, "Well, I, 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 you know, I can't quite bring myself to." Well, he said, "I mean, he's a Yorkshireman." He said, oh, "Help, lad." He said, "Got to choose between Our Lady and, and going to hell. Which is it going to be?" <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I began to pray the rosary, and it had an immediate effect. In uh, <clears throat> I, I mean, I was I was woken up in the middle of the night, three nights running with with an aspect of hell breaking into my bedroom and my sleep. So I went without sleep. And, and hell does what it always does, which is to bring, has has two particular phenomena. It says, uh, first of all, there is no hope. And secondly, it says it's your fault. Uh, and, you know, that's how you know it's <laughs> hell rather than the nervous breakdown. Right. And also, it right. kind of ought, you know, it just happens at a moment in time. Nervous breakdowns you can see coming weeks, months, years off. But uh, so I, when I picked up the rosary and came out the other side, having discovered the rosary worked in an extraordinary way, I, I had to revisit everything. Uh, I, I then I, I went looking at the apparitions to understand Our Lady better. I came across Garamondal, uh, Zaitun, um, and uh, I very quickly came to the point where I believed in the, in the apparitions and developed a relationship with Our Lady and then began to reject, of course, the whole Jungian mindset. So this is a long segue about Sir Pope Francis. So let me get back there. Um, Take your I, time. I, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Somewhere along the line, he swallowed the presuppositions I swallowed too. And he's making all the kind of Jungian inclusive, uh, semi-Marxist, uh, semi-political, uh, semi-psychological therapeutic noises which you then, which you then wrap, they, they they then wrap it up like liberation theology did in certain aspects of the gospel, compassion, misunderstanding the Magnificat. I would say also that, that one of the great theological perversions is misunderstanding the Beatitudes and the and the prophetic language of the Old Testament, which is almost always not about economic poverty; it's about spiritual poverty. As it happens, economic and spiritual poverty are never disconnected. But that isn't the point. The point is that in the Beatitudes, particularly in the Magnificat, also, and, and right the way through the prophets, poverty is a spiritual metaphysical con construct. Yes. And, and 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 what our society has done, not understanding metaphysics, is to read it as an econ economic textbook. Um, and again, you know, that's what we're getting in the Vatican at the moment, too. 
But it all it all stems from these presuppositions. So I, I look at Pope Francis and I think, well, okay, I understand how you got there. Um, and, and I'm sorry the devil hasn't attacked you and shocked you into repentance like he shocked me. Um, but but you're profoundly mistaken. And this is of enormous danger to the church. Um, uh, to what extent is he morally culpable? I, I know the Lord knows. I have no idea. But I, I, I know what he's doing. I know why he's doing it. I don't know how he came to do it. But I'm very sorry indeed that within the church, there aren't the voices with sufficient gifted astute discernment to say we see what you're doing it's just wrong and and here's why it's wrong you know here's an interpretation of the gospels you know we'll, let's look at a bit of greek and hebrew philosophy and theology let's look at the history of the church let's look at the history of the 20th century let's look at the, our great competitors these parasites that are slicking into christianity particularly the whole therapeutic jargon stuff and marxism now let's peel them away we don't have to swallow this stuff we 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 are we're cleverer than that but that's slightly hubristic we are better informed and more spiritually attuned than that my 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 astonishment is that within our culture so many people in my generation just drunk the Kool-Aid and, and unlike me, they weren't lucky enough to have some kind of car crash that made them stop and think twice. Only by stopping and thinking twice can you, can you find metanoia and begin to repent. So I, I understand it and I, and I, you know, but ultimately I think it's a metaphysical struggle. I think this is the deceit of the devil and only, only being on our knees and repenting and, Invoking Our Lady and the Saints and the power of the Mass will, will unglue this this um, this thing. There's a wonderful in Lewis knew, again. Lewis knew about this he, in one of his Narnia books, his children's books. Um, I think it's a silver chair. He has uh, the Lady of the Green Kirtle. She's a witch. Um, one of the things she does is to put some green incense fumigation stuff on the fire, and and as the children breathe it in, it brings amnesia. Um, and and they're saved by um, a, a creature called Puddleglum, I think, who sees what's happening, and risking burning his feet to pieces, he stomps on the fire and he puts out this this aroma of, of forgetfulness, and the children begin to recover their memory. Um, it's a very powerful image of what's happening in the twenty first century. We we have this kind of aroma of forgetfulness of, of the yeah. tradition and of mysticism and of sanctity, uh, and and we have forgotten. And in that forgetfulness, you know, the lady of the green kirtle has this propaganda. There is, there is no, there is no God. There is no outside. There is no truth. There is no beauty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And along those lines, to go back to you, I think your uh, analysis of the Jungian angle here is brilliant. Uh, and it, it, there could also possibly be these pantheistic undertones, right? Because Jung, Jung, I mean, you go, going once again back to Lewis, Lewis had in Mere Christianity talked about the critique, the notion of the God who is beyond the moral categories of good and evil. In, the, in other words, that good and evil are simply light and shadow, yin and yang, mm -hmm. the reconciliation mm -hmm. of opposites and, you know, up one day, down the next. And this is just the great washing machine of existence. Mm -hmm. And it all comes out in the end. Uh, and uh, there's an element, I think, of that in, in, in Jungian uh, analysis of, of our spiritual side. And one sees, therefore, I'm not going to say that Pope Francis is a straight up pantheist. I don't, I don't think that. But you also see his, his exaggerated emphasis on environmentalism as well in connection, almost as if uh, our devotion to, to the natural environment in which we live is, is some sort of ultimacy. 
it takes on it takes on an importance in this papacy that seems a bit outsized to me. Yes, um, and 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 uh, there are no new heresies; <laughs> they're always yeah. the same. The environmental heresy is the same thing that the that the prophets were dealing with when they were confronting the Canaanite high places. Um, if you don't believe in God the Father uh, as the Creator and uh, and the earth given to us for stewardship, then, as Lewis pointed out, you know the, the fact is that masculinity and femininity are theologically very, very highly charged indeed. And if you don't control them, they'll control you. Now, revelation allows us to control them, uh, and but but if you don't control them, then. There is a kind of default instinct in humanity to placate Mother Earth because she feeds us, um, and you know she, we we live on the teat, so to speak. She ev everything we eat comes from her. We put we we piss her off. We we annoy her. We desecrate her. We might starve, and so there is an instinctive natural religion, also pantheistic thing, but also it's it's this Earth Earth Mother Sky Father conflict. Uh, so Christendom won that, but 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 before that, pantheism won it, and and um, polytheism won it, and so again because of the amnesia, we've forgotten why we won it and why it was important, and so we're slipping back into yeah. uh, into the whole Gaia thing, which is not just ecology; it's also the religion of 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 the feminine and uh, and the replacement of the creator with creation, which is such a theological. Yes, uh, I mean, was our, it was our, it was Arnold Toynbee, I believe, who pointed out that uh, in animistic religions, uh, the practitioners thereof understood quite well that nature is both mother and monster, and yes. yet it seems like so many of the nature spiritualities of today have forgotten the monster aspect. That nature doesn't give a hoot, doesn't give a damn about us in it's any a great deal. Go ahead. Yeah, well, sorry, the, the, you froze and I, I didn't hear you continue. I, I'm sorry to talk across you. Well, you, you're right. Um, and also the, the fact that, that, you know, priestesses abound partly because in their femininity, they they have a more congruent um, representation of, of of Mother Earth and fertility. Um, but of course, what, we, what we're required to have and what we're given in the Judeo-Christian revelation is a balance. Uh, but it's, it, it, And it's not a symmetrically equivalent balance. Uh, the, the, the quest for symmetry is, is a great mistake in the same way that there's no symmetry between Jesus and Mary. Um, there's even there's right. no real symmetry between, between Adam and Eve. But there's a right ordering of a complementary relationship. Uh, but once again, there are no theologians talking about... Um, about about the complementary balance of masculinity and femininity, uh, the implications of creator and creation, the way in which you know this works itself out in in human sexual uh, and um, conceptual matters, um, but 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 you know we've 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 forgotten our theology and we've misunderstood the scriptures. Very much so. And that leads na quite naturally into you just recently had an article that I posted everywhere that I that I post things. Uh, I believe it was in the Catholic Herald. I can't remember now. It was, it was uh, and I think it was the best analysis, and I said so publicly, of uh, Cardinal Fernandez's both fiducia supplicants, but then also the, the later revelation of his uh, his adolescent musings on sexuality. Uh, that book in 1998 came out. And I just wanted to public say that I, I thought that your analysis hit it out of the ballpark because so much of the analysis was either focusing on the fact that it was titillating or mm -hmm. quasi soft porn. And it sort of misses the point. Uh, 
or, or that, oh, this is just theology of the body from John Paul II on mm -hmm. steroids or whatever. Uh, you seem to get right to the heart of it. So maybe why don't, why don't you talk to my viewers a little bit about what you said in that article that I, I, I think was just brilliant. Uh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, uh, but, but in a sense, you know, God goes before everything. As it happens, my my doctoral work was on an English theologian who was a friend of C.S. Lewis, one of the Inklings, called Charles Williams. Yes. One of the very interesting things about Charles Williams was he was he was a part of a, a neo-Rosicrucian group. This neo-Rosicrucian group was born out of something called the Golden Dawn. The Golden Dawn, for people who want to know, was this an extraordinary group of English thinkers and writers uh, in the late 19th century who were interested in a revamping of mysticism and, and, and contained on a plane black magicians like Aleister Crowley at one end. With, um, yeah. We won't talk about him. You either know about him or you don't. And at the other end, some Christians who were essentially interested in a, in a, in a, a reinvigoration of the mystical life. Um, but they've all found themselves in one group. And fascinatingly, right in the middle was W.B. Yeats, who was kind of looking both ways at the same time. Uh, and one of the things that I had to do was I, I instinctively, I was fairly sure that my man was not an occultist, although he'd clearly been in, in the ballpark and had got, you know, he'd been tainted by it and uh, too, too close to it for good for comfort. But nonetheless, he'd made his way into authentic Orthodox Christianity. And one of the things I was trying to do, particularly against the evangelicals, was to say, this man is an authentic Christian. Lewis described him as the most holy man he'd ever met. Uh, Lewis wasn't easily fooled. Um, and um, right. but, but this required me to get to know, to know not only about this 19th century group, but also to become fairly familiar with esotericism and alchemy in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. And so where, where the roots were to be found. So I know a bit about it. Um, and when I saw when I when I saw that Cardinal Fernandez was essentially practicing sex magic, I said, "Well, I know what sex magic is. I'm sorry if other people don't, but it's, but it's this." And and in fact, I've I've, I've written a subsequent article which come out, which I'm much more proud of, which is that um, if I can just boast, not boast about it, but I mean, it, it has yeah. come out. It has come out. No, no, it has, has hasn't come out yet. Oh, okay. so it's, it's coming out in the print edition, and they'll, maybe they'll put it out in, in on the internet after that. But, but, but my great lament is, if you're going to do magic, you should have done music magic, not sex magic, because, but you know, if you want to find something that acts instrumentally to make God present, of of the different forms of human experience. You could legitimately make that mistake with music, and, and in fact, one of the problems the church has is it it becomes idolatrous about music. Very few church musicians are practicing Christians. They're 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 practice, they're, they're 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 seduced by music itself as an art form, and music is a very worthy art form to seduce you. If you're going to give way to an idolatry, you know you've you've got a worthy opponent in music to have been beaten by. That doesn't mean we should give way, but 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 when you listen oh, to Mozart above all, and but Palestrina, um, you 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 know, heaven becomes as close to being present as being present might be. But nonetheless, it still does not instrumentalize the divine presence. The mass does, music doesn't. How this cardinal can have chosen orgasmic sex instead of Mozart? I mean, how? How what what low classness is this? 
And so my, yeah. you know, I'm kind of deeply aesthetically offended that he should go into the realm of sex magic. And I have to say, it can only be, you know, if I, if, if, if <laughs> in an imaginary world where I was his confessor, I would say, you've been dabbling in things. They've got you. This this thing's got its hooks into you, hasn't it? You wouldn't be doing this if it hadn't got it. When did it get its hooks into you? What haven't you repented of? Uh, and, um, you know, we then have to talk about some things that led to him writing about a theology of kissing with far too many moustaches for comfort. And then <laughs> the, way, the way in which, the way, you know, yeah. this this ridiculous and very dangerous, wholly <coughs> holy improper philosophical book. But the, the important thing is not to lambast him for having burnt his fingers in some form of, of uh, the, the incompetence of discipleship. You know, we've, we've all had to go to the confession. Um, but it's to say he clearly hasn't repented. He hasn't noticed it's got its hooks into him. And it has a form of continuation in his further theological writings. And, and the reason why Amoris Laetitia is causing such trouble is because he smuggled sex magic into it, or rather, the to put it more in a, in a, in a clearer way, that's probably that's too clumsy a phrase. The the, uh, the the way in which his weakness for sex magic has continued to develop theologically has led to an ambiguity about sexual romantic relations right. that then distorts the very careful and difficult theology of sexuality within Christianity. I mean, we, we do have trouble. I mean, John Paul II's theology of the body is, of course, magnificent. But, you know, the Catholic today, for example, that people say to me, well, how could you become a Catholic? Look what it does to sex. And I say, if you know, when I was in the 1960s and 70s, I thought that too. But now look what's happened to sex. Sex has become the most addictive and commercially powerful thing in a way that is... Yeah. Is, is wrecking marriages, destroying men's brains, making it impossible for teenagers to date each other, uh, causing erectile dysfunction. Um, uh, and and, and this, this wave of addiction has swept the Western world. And you want to tell the Catholic Church, which is the only public body that's ever not fallen from it, that its self-defense was exaggerated? It was not exaggerated. I mean, this might lead us into celibacy and priests again, but but you know, celibacy and the whole the enormous importance of humana vitae in 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 keeping a barrier between sex and recreation, making it sex or procreation only. Only the Catholic Church did this. It's the only philosophical movement yeah. to have the capacity, the insight, and and the deep rootedness to take on board before it got to us this terrible, terrible addiction. Yeah, the Anglicans waved the white flag. What was it, 1929? Yeah, uh, very early. Uh, at the Lambeth Conference uh, where they said, you know, it's it's, it's, it's an instructive, too, about, about how these things go. Because uh, yeah. if you look at the Anglican decision, it was, well, you know, under certain very limited circumstances and for only very good reasons, we will allow Anglican couples to practice some sort of contraception so long as this does not take deep root, blah, 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 blah. And of course, within a few short years, it's like, well, you know, it's just situation ethics. I mean, that's you yeah. know, the, the yeah. situation of the ethics is practiced by people who don't understand either that moral is absolute 
or why the moral, how the moral rules we have connect with the absolute. And the thing is, Catholic That's right. theology, Catholic ethical theology, is always, it does that. Now, I don't want to, to, to be rude to people because it took me to the end of my life to discover the Catholics are right. So I'm a slow developer and it's taken me a long time to get here. Um, but now I've got here, I, I want to tell people who are even slower than me, um, look, don't wait. Do some analysis. Join the dots. And but but the terrifying thing is that in Pope Francis and Cardinal Cardinal Fernandez, we we have people with the power to damage the magisterium, giving us the most dreadful problem as Catholics. To be to be a Catholic is to believe in 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 papal authority and the magisterium. And the almost the worst thing that could happen to a Catholic is to have an abuse of papal authority and an abuse of the magisterium. And one of the things we have to do in my lifetime, and you know, we have to do it now, is to develop a a, a kind of an evolved understanding of the of authentic and inauthentic magisterium. And I'm afraid an evolved understanding of authentic and inauthentic papal authority. This is this is such a shock that you know my, my trolls tell me, who the hell do you think you are becoming a Catholic and then disbelieving in papal authority? Oh well. I get that. You should see my email inbox as well, because I've been very critical of Pope Francis and, you know, email advice after email advice about how I'm losing my soul and how can I, as a Catholic, criticize the Pope publicly. Here's part. And I agree with you 100 percent. One of the greatest theological needs of our time provoked by this papacy. I know Ed Penton, the, the canonist, has said, Perhaps God has allowed this papacy precisely in order to bring all the toxins and the poisons Mm. out in Mm. order to now to deal with them, that we've now since the definition of papal infallibility in the late 19th century. Right. We've had this issue of what is a relationship between the pope and authority and bishops. It's been festering for a long time. Okay, so maybe now is the time to deal with it along those lines. I will say this. All right. The, the, the command that Catholics are to obey the Pope, uh, even in his prudential judgments and so forth, you see this kind of uh, hypertrophy of obedience to the Pope all over the place in, in, in various texts, Lumen Gentium 25 and so on. My answer to that is this. None of those admonitions on the part of the church for us to obey the Pope rise to the same level as the Decalogue, as to a commandment in the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, one of them is honor your father and your mother. Now, honoring your father and your mother is a moral absolute, but one that has to nuance that and say, well, what if my father is beating the crap out of my mother? What if my father is raping my sister? What does honoring my father mean in that context? It means that I call the police on my father, right? That's what it means. It means saying something even perhaps publicly negative in order to out my father. So I would say, okay, we have the Pope. He is our Holy Father. But what is a Catholic to do when our Holy Father becomes an abusive father? Are we then bound Mm. to a slavish obedience even to an abusive father? And my answer is no, we are not. Now we have to unpack what that means theologically downstream. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I wish I could have put it as elegantly as you, um, but I, I pursued the same line of argument with a slightly slightly different material. But but I, I'm very interested to see that we're we're exercising the same uh, analytical um, uh, process. So, so I would I would say that in all ethics, you you need to get as, well, as in all philosophy, um, you need to get as far back to your original 
presuppositions or proposals as as possible because you get those wrong everything then flows badly downstream and so in turn what were the, what were they trying to do when when those people who said to us you must honor the pope they were trying to ensure the, that the papal office was given the right level of devotion and prominence that our lord intended i would say that's the prime virtue so in all questions then we say well so that's what we're aiming for is it the honor the papal office yes that's why you should honor the pope Okay, so now circumstances change and you have a bad pope. How do I honour the papal office with a bad pope? Well, you make a distinction between the papal office and the bad pope. How do we yeah. do that? Well, <laughs> well, that's fine. So by criticising Pope Francis, what you and I are trying to do is to, is to maintain exactly the virtue that the people who said obey the pope intended for us to do. But when they said that, they hadn't conceived of a pope bringing this. Uh, dis dishonor on the papal office. It wasn't. It wasn't part of their their map at the time. But now we have that. We have to be a little bit uh, light footed theologically and intellectually and say, how are we going to defend the papal office? And in our time, in our generation, it's to say that the present incumbent is not fulfilling his obligations to the right. office. Instead, instead, he's imposing upon the office his own sub-Christian predilections. That's a very powerful thing to say, but we've explained why we think they are sub-Christian. We're not That's just right. being offensive. Uh, if the present uh, holder of the office is imposing upon this sacred office, his sub-Christian predilections, we are defending the sacredness of the office by saying so. We may want to watch our attitude. We may want to watch our tone of voice. We may want to say, mea culpa, I am no better myself. But, but, we, but we're not entitled to keep silent because we're doing exactly what the original people who said obey the Pope intended. We are defending the papal office to the best of our ability. Abs, I could not agree more. That is very eloquently said, uh, which is why in, in everything, I, you know, I write a lot on Catholic World Report, National Catholic Register on my own blog, and I do these videos. One of the things that I often emphasize over and over and over again is that despite my criticisms of this pope, I do not believe that he has taught formal heresy. I do not believe that he has dragged the papacy into heresy. I don't I don't believe that. I believe that he holds private opinions that might be heretical. I believe that he has set a pastoral course for the church that is disastrous uh, and, and might have downstream doctrinal effects that are heretical. But for now, because I, I had a really great conversation with a priest in Rome, and I won't mention his name, but he's a prominent priest when I was covering the Synod. And I was in Rome and he said to me, Larry, we have to be very careful of one thing in our criticism of Pope Francis. And it is this, we have to be sure that there's a papal office left after he's gone. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, th that we can't be, and we see this amongst certain arch traditionalists, right? The Pope's a heretic. He's teaching formal heresy. He's an anti-Pope. It's sede vacanteism. I think this does enormous damage to the papal office that we, you and I, and others like us, are trying to salvage a Cardinal Mueller, a Cardinal Sarah. Yes. They're not trying to destroy the papal office. They're trying to make the, dis the very distinguished distinction that you're making here. And I think that that's why I said we need to watch our tone because yes. it's precisely this level of intense emotional assault that makes it difficult to do what we're setting out to do and the only justification for what we're doing, which is separating our criticism of the man and the office. If you just get enraged, and it's a perfectly understandable rage, it's 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 the rage of a father who sees his daughter being raped. You know, right. you just lose it. You're, you're so upset. You, um, yeah. and, and you're likely to do dreadful things in your anger. So I'm very sympathetic to the traditionalists who are, who are enraged. I understand why they are, but it would be better if they tried to do what you and I are 
aspiring to do, which is to yes. and, and not allow people the prospect of confusing our analysis with our sense of righteousness. Um, we have to yes. allow the analysis to carry the righteousness rather than uh, to, to express it emotionally, or we'll frighten people to the extent where they can't hear what we're saying. And it's very important they should hear what we're saying. I, I, yeah. I'm a bit more ambiguous about p the Pope and heresy. I, I think when, when this comes back to does he know what he's doing, he has he has trod such a careful line yes. so successfully <laughs> um, that I think you didn't get where you are today by not knowing what you're doing or why you're doing it. And I'm afraid I think that increases the likelihood of culpability. I'm not going to say so, but you can't have it both ways. He's either, you know, he's 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 either just sort of drunk too deeply of Peronist Argentinian uh spirit of confusion and he's just yeah unfortunately breaking the china in the china shop or else or else with a very very sure touch and not by himself either but surrounded by people who are helping him think through this and right. pl plan the strategy you know the the, the 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 timing and the strategy this is this is not happening by casual evolution i think it's being planned and therefore um, because it's too clever. It's it's too sure-footed. I agree. Uh, he is a Jesuit, after all, and I have many good Jesuit friends, but, you know, he is a Jesuit, after all, and is therefore a master of walking right up to the line without crossing over it. I agree with you. I think this is deliberate. Uh, I always tell people who always throw, you know, the, the Pope's planers, that's the pejorative mm. term that's thrown out there, for, you know, for people like Mike Lewis and Mike Lofton and guys like this, you know, God bless them. They're, they're doing what they want to do. Uh, but the, it, they're always throwing back in my face. Uh, well, you, if you read this in Amoris Letizia, you read this in Fiducia, it can all be explained in a perfectly orthodox way. And I, and I fully can see that. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. a way mm -hmm. in which you can completely spin everything this pope has taught in a formally orthodox way. That's why I say he hasn't taught formal heresy. He, he can He's off the hook in that regard. The papacy is intact in terms of the infallibility and indefectibility of the church and all those categories. Nevertheless, I agree with you. If you, uh, my concern is look at not what he says, but what he's done, who the boots on the ground personnel is policy. Who has he yeah. promoted? Who has he surrounded himself with? Yeah. What kind of people does he seem to prefer? And the kinds of prelates and priests and so forth that he prefers are the Cardinal Holerics, the J father Martins, these sorts of people. You begin to see a picture of an incrementalist at work somebody who doesn't want to create schism and massive mm -hmm. dysfunction overnight, but he wants to slowly change the church by a kind of process of infiltration or osmosis or whatever you want to call it. And so forth. that's why I do think it's important to speak out, to point out, hey, this is what's going on precisely so we don't get a Francis part two. So uh, you're absolutely right. I, I love the idea of Francis the incrementalist. Um, I think that should be that should be placed in the public domain as soon as possible because that's exactly he is Francis the incrementalist. He he knows what he's doing, and uh, he he's seen. So he's been Pope long enough to know perfectly well what the effect of his actions are, cumulatively speaking. And at no point has he rode back from them, closed them down, curtailed them, redefined them. Uh, he's been very. He appears to be. He is very happy for them to roll out the way he they 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 have done, and therefore he is an incrementalist, and and it's planned and it's deliberate, 
And um, I mean, my father used to accuse me of this as a child. He said, you're a very annoying child. I keep on wanting to box your ears and beat you. But somehow, you know exactly where the line is. And just as I'm about <laughs> to raise my hand, you stop. They say, you're, you're, you're a very frustrating child to have. And I, I, I didn't know I had that gift at the time. But I think Pope Francis has it theologically. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that, well, that's just what he's the, doing. Yeah, and just the other day is a case in point, right? In the, in, in the interview on Italian television, where the interviewer says, oh, you know, yeah. how does a heavenly father who loves us <laughs> yes. all send anybody to hell? And the Pope says, well, in so many words, I, I get the force of your question. And this isn't dogma. My private opinion <laughs> is hopefully I like to think of hell as empty. OK, we can debate. And, uh, you know, I, my, my favorite theologian is Hans Urs von Balthasar. I did my dissertation on him. Right. So I have a certain sympathy for the idea that I'm not certain I completely agree with it. But, you know. I don't think it's heretical to say maybe we should hope for the salvation of everybody after all. But nevertheless, for a pope to say that, I mean, it's just so your point of how clever he is. Because okay, we got the dogmas of the church over here. That's what you're complaining about. But my own private views are over here, you know, and and so he makes that distinction. Yet it's very subtle. I mean, because he is the pope saying this, right? Can a pope say something like that? So I'd like to argue with you, but only because this is, you know, wh- why not have a theological argument when you can? Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I, I, well, I, so I take your point, and it sounds it sounds very noble and very compassionate and very good. Um, there, there are two things I want to say. Well, the first one was about uh, about hell, and the second one, oh yes, death. That's right, uh, death, the death penalty. Um, so uh, I had a, I had a very strange but conventional out of the body experience when I was nineteen. I I drunk myself to death uh, with a liter of of spirits and um, left my body. Um, I later became a professor of psychology of religion and I became quite uh, well read on near death experiences and they, they happen to a lot of people a lot of the time. Um, so I'm not I'm not suggesting this is anything um, particularly grace filled. It's it's a thing that happened. Uh, but a number of things took place. So first of all, there were bits of the book of Revelation, which happened when I was, I, I went to judgment um, and I was judged. And uh, for a 19 year old who wasn't at all theologically well-educated, there were some quite sophisticated moments of insight. It appeared to me that God was plural and singular at the same time, uh, that that he was not light, but he was, but he was what light came from. How one can make that distinction when you're drunk out of your head or dead, I, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> Uh, drunk and dead. Okay, uh, drunk and dead. <laughs> well, one or the other or both. Um, but but there was a moment when when then I don't know why, but the, the verse there was silence in heaven for half an hour came. Wrong context, because of course it's about Saint Michael and the fallen angels. But but the court of heaven disappeared and withdrew, and I was left suspended in midair and space whilst judgment took place. And I had this very strange thought, which has never left me. If I get sent to hell, I will have the consolation of knowing that there is justice in the universe. Now, I, I was not a bad 19-year-old. I, I really hadn't done very much wrong in, in terms of, I was a sinner and therefore I'm not entitled to be in the presence of God, not able to withstand the presence of God, which is, I think, where what you know partly what hell is. But there's no reason why I should have had a thought like that, except that it seemed to me to be entirely cogent and true. Uh, if I get sent to hell, I will have the consolation in hell that justice has been done. And and then you know, then the court came back and I was forgiven and sent back. And I came into my body uh, at about five o'clock in the morning. Normally, I can't manage more than two pints of beer without my bowels being interrupted. As it happened, I felt better than I'd ever felt in my life. And that's one of the reasons why I think it really happened rather than anything else. But equally, equally, I... I um, 
I thought I'd been forgiven. How can I keep this? Uh, I know I must forgive everybody else. And I had, I'd got into a fight with a guy who was running the music camp before because he was stealing the money from those of us who were his tutors. And I'd beaten him up in order to persuade him to give us our, our wages. My colleagues asked me to. I mean, you're the most articulate and and uh, and pugnacious of all the music. You know, would you persuade him? <laughs> and so I, I had persuaded him. So the first thing that I happened, I thought, I have to forgive him. Uh, I, 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 I waited till he appeared at breakfast. And then I, I, I with all the urgency of this near-death experience impelling me, my my gratitude being free from hell, I, I said, Ricardo, we have to talk. You know, can't forgive you. He looked at me and began to walk the other way. And then I, I ran. So he ran. And <laughs> I finally caught him up, grabbed him by the lapels. And then an exact repetition of the other, the, I lifted him off and began to shake him saying, I've come to forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> he was terrified. Oh, uh, yeah. But but the, the reason I tell the story is not, not, not just for, because it, I am actually happened that way. But such was the power of what I think I encountered. I've been forgiven. The only way I can keep this is by forgiving other people, even those who've wronged me. And, right. and if I go to hell, justice is served. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we can have any 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 pleasure about human beings who are designed to be children of God, to worship and to adore him and to receive all the benefits of, 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 the, of the blessed sacrifice of the lamb. There is no satisfaction whatsoever, but there is a complicated complicated um, alchemy again between justice and love. It, it defeats most of us. Very few of us are able to theologically or yeah. emotionally balance it. And, and the, trouble, the trouble with what Pope Francis says there is that he entirely destroys any attempt for the rest of us, lower mortals, to gain some sense of that balance. And yet, as we look around, one of the reasons why people don't believe in God is they say, but there is no justice. Look at what human beings do to each other. They, 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 they you know, our therapeutic culture is crying out for, for soothing and absolution. But part of our moral crisis is this absence of justice in the face of what human beings do. And, and the other thing I want to say is that I think he may have committed heresy. And I was very surprised when I saw it. I, I've found the Catechism of the Catholic Church to be the most marvellous book. I can't believe I've survived this long without it. I just love it. I love what it does, how it's laid out, how it presents itself. And yet the Pope changed it on the death penalty. We have yeah. 20 centuries of very clear teaching about the death penalty. He had no right, theologically, to change what the Catechism teaches about the death penalty. Having done that, it allows him a platform for changing the teaching that he had really intended to get to about sexuality. I believe that when he changed the teaching yeah. of the Catholic Church on the death penalty, that was heresy. And it was intentional heresy designed to produce other subsequent heresies that are equally important. I uh, agree. Maybe slightly. I don't I necessarily disagree, but I have a question about that, about the death penalty thing. One of the interesting things to me is, you know, John Paul II, who obviously was opposed to the death penalty, and I think largely as a result of the fact that he lived under two regimes, Nazi and Stalinist, uh, that, that taught him that it's a very dangerous thing indeed to give the state the power to execute its own. For sure. For sure. Uh, but, but even he, with that visceral distrust of state power over human life, even he did not change the catechism of the catholic church in that way and uh, although i hadn't although i hadn't realized ahead. it before it ties into just what we've been saying because he was very i didn't realize this i haven't said it before but i now see it clearly 
because he was doing what we what we should be doing, which was uh, searching for this very, very fine, elusive balance between justice and mercy. Let it be said, I don't want the death penalty either. I, I, I would like yeah. people to have as long as possible to repent. Uh, I hate the idea of the state killing people. But you can't, but but the moment you abolish it, or you say it's immoral, you produce this, this very serious imbalance from which worse things will flow. And the least bad way of managing this conundrum is to keep the the the, the justification of, of, of the surrender of life. You know, we're back again to amnesia. Most people yeah. don't understand the distinction in Hebrew between thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not kill. The Decalogue is thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. And therefore, um, yeah. therefore, the, the state can make a moral case in principle for saying we have the right to take this life at this stage, given what the person's done. Yeah, the very God who gave those tablets to Moses basically commanded him to wipe out half the people at the base of the mountain when he came down and they were worshiping the golden calf. You know, uh, but anyway, uh, what do you make, though? And, and I, I often turn to this. Of, of, in other words, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. Mm. but saying that maybe possibly this is yet another way where he walks right up to the line, but doesn't cross it where it's very slippery, where the, he doesn't say that the death penalty is intrinsically evil. He says it is always in all, all cases inadmissible, which is a strange innovation in the language of moral theology in the Catholic tradition. If you ask me when, when applied to something as serious as this, what do you think this is just a, a, a distinction without a difference, or is do, is there any importance to be ascribed to his avoiding the language of intrinsic evil? Well, I I, I, I trained in my early years as as a lawyer, um, and and occasionally that has some usefulness. Thank goodness, all those years of learning law was a very tedious waste of time. If I was his defense lawyer, I would say that uh, what he had done was to try and change change the ideology and the and the ethics of the church without with as with the minimum amount, amount of stress and strain in other words the, that form of words was intended to create a new principle but without breaking all the eggs in the basket and it's done exactly that again if we judge him by the yes. effect look well look what it's done he smuggled this in he did it in a way that didn't draw attention to itself. Some astute people were very uncomfortable, but it wasn't the language, the event, the subject. It wasn't quite enough, as you say, right up to the line. But I'm, but it did change it. It changed the meaning. It, it did change the meaning, teaching. and it's part of that incrementalism that I was talking about. Now, let me, okay, let's move on to one other thing. Uh, I would. If I were to point at this papacy and say, "Can hey, chap, can you show one example where you think this pope really clearly has taught something heretical? I would say the closest he has come, and I have not seen a clarification, is his signature on the Abu Dhabi statement that God has willed the oh, pluralism absolutely. of all religions. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I, I think it yeah. was Bishop Athanasius Schneider who asked him afterwards, uh, you do mean God's permissive will, not direct will, right? And apparently the pope said, yeah, yeah, or something like that. I'll clarify that later, but never did. I don't And Edward Penton has made this point in an interview I did with him. He says, yeah, the pope has clearly taught heresy in his signing of the Abu Dhabi statement. Okay. You, you bring up the death penalty. I bring up and Ed Penton brings up the Abu Dhabi statement. Let's say for the sake of argument 
that the Pope then has taught heresy, formal heresy as Pope in these two occasions. Let's let's say stipulate to that. What does that then do to our theology of the papacy? What what then do we do going forward theologically with what you said earlier about developing a kind of a, a, a more chastened theology of papal authority? Well, at this point, I should be overwhelmed by humility and say, "Don't ask me. I'm an I'm a new Catholic. What could I What could I possibly bring to the table? Ask some of my older and more learned brothers and sisters. I should say that. I do say that. But at the same time, if you said, "Well," Have you had no thoughts about it? Um, I have had thoughts about it, and they're a bit confused because they, they require a level of kind of theological and historical imagination that needs to be better informed than mine is. But quite quite clearly, particularly if you put it within the context of the, of the Eastern Patriarchates, um, one of the things that we haven't done well in the West is to manage our relations with other apostolic authorities that have a claim to the care of the church. Uh, so the Western Patriarch has been a bit brutal with the Eastern Patriarchates. Uh, they've been a bit brutal back. We've not managed to solve that. Again, I mean, if you're going to have a synod in a thing, having a synod to heal the division between East and West would, would be, uh, particularly as we discover both politically and spiritually, every time we fail to look after each other in East and West, both evil and as it happens, Islam uh, do very well out of it. We we ought to kind of join the dots again and say we don't want either evil or Islam to flourish more than they have to. And we can do something about that by healing, setting out to heal the church. But but this particular point, I would say that what we're trying to find is some form of of rebalancing of papal authority. And what we might do is set it in a wider apostolic context. So clearly we have a number of sources of authority. I think we have to have a, re a renewed epistemology. Um, and uh, I'm not the person to know how, how that should be done, but it's clearly got to involve the Holy Scriptures and the magisterium uh, and, and the bishops. Uh, it's got to be consistent with conciliar development. Uh, and, and I think it ought to be done with some ideally with some form of restoration of 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 apostolic accountability between the patriarchates yes i agree uh what's interesting is i was just uh, i was just reading this morning uh, just this came in the mail yesterday uh it's the uh louis bouillet memoirs oh, yes Nation yes Press. wow uh louis bouillet <laughs> one of my favorite resource month theologians i love his book on ecclesiology the church of god what is interesting in this in these memoirs i'm reading his, his book the church of god his ecclesiology came out right at the end of the second vatican council mm -hmm. and he says in here he wishes that maybe the book had come out a little later because there were things that he would have incorporated into this text. But one of the things that comes out in Bouillet's memoirs, very, very interesting, in his reminiscences about, about the council and so on, he lets slip a couple of lines that are really interesting, where he implies very directly that since the great schism of East and West, that no true ecumenical council is really possible. And I, I, I thought that was a very interesting insight. And it kind of goes to what you're saying here. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I think, something very similar, that we need to recover a recovery of the fullness of, of Catholic with a small c apostolic authority in the church. Well, 
I just agree. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm glad he got there first, <laughs> and, and I, and oh. I probably, I, I read a bit of Bouillet. In fact, I, I, I did some postgraduate work with the Jesuits at London University, as it, as it happened in the 1980s, which is where I came across him. And I thought, I like this man. This man's good. Um, so I probably picked it up from him in the first place. Yeah, and what's it, he quotes Ratzinger in a few places, and he himself also then. So you think, okay, so he's a conciliarist, or no, he's not mm. actually. Mm. Uh, he, he really he really throws a lot of burning coals on the whole idea of the church being run by a, a big committee of people. Uh, mm. And he, there's a quote from Gregory of Nyssa that he tossed in there about the Council of Constantinople being a gaggle of nitwits, essentially. And, you know, and, and so kind of what he's pointing out is there, as you've just said, there, there's there's still an unresolved ecclesiological nuancing of council, pope other patriarchates, apostolic authority, the epistemology of revelation, scripture, blah, blah, blah. This is still an ongoing process. It doesn't mean that we don't have sure dogmatic markers that we can say this is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, but it does mean that there is some developing still, some growing, uh, some growing pains that the church is in right now. Um, and so I agree. In other words, I'm just I'm agreeing completely with you. I get emails all the time from readers and viewers saying, so, Mr. Smarty Pants, since you're critical of the pulp all the time, then what's your theory of papal authority? What's your theory then of, you know, dogmas and certitude and all? Well, it's in flux right now. If I had the answer to all that, I'd be a billionaire. I'd be, you know, living on an island in the South Pacific. I, I would have, well, you know, you'd be pope. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be Pope or something. They'd, they'd crown me in an absentia and say, get over here to Rome. You know, no, I, I, I don't want to posture a pose as if I have all the answers. But I do know one thing. Uh, I mean, I've studied and I think you're in the same way. I've, I've studied enough Christian theology, history, philosophy, so on, to know that there's something not right in Rome right now. Sure. Something yeah. very wrong in Rome right now, and it needs pointing mm -hmm. out, regardless of what the downstream effects this might be of our various hyper papalist theories of, you know, the glories of Rome and so forth. I don't know, just my point of view. No, I think that's right. But I mean, the wonderful thing about Christianity is that um, uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? No, certainly not. But every time we sin, grace abounds. So we've we've screwed up, and the Lord will come to our rescue, and He will yes. take. He, he, you know, as long as we get on our knees and we want to repent and try to repent, uh, He will bring good out even even out of this mess. It's just that. It's just that we we live at a pretty critical time in human history, or, yes, or not human do. history, but the history of our civilization, and and the. Um, the stakes are very high. And I think that is probably since we've been at this for about an hour and 45 minutes, that's probably the best way <laughs> to end. It's the stakes Good. are very high. <laughs> and yet there's where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Gavin, do you have any last words for the viewers before before we sign off? Oh, yes. What a lovely conversation, Larry. So nice to meet you. I'm sorry we haven't met before, but thank I'm you very sorry much we haven't met me before either. I've, <laughs> I've watched a lot of your videos and read, read your articles at I cannot thank you enough for coming on. And I hope I don't insult any of my other 50 or 60 <clears throat> people that I've interviewed over the past four years. But I, I think this is probably the, the most fun I've had and the most interesting conversation I've had in any interview I've done so far in my four years of doing this. So thank you, Gavin, for coming on for an absolutely fantastic conversation, I thought. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye now.